Hello Life Changes Church, welcome to our YouTube channel. We have got an amazing word prepared for you, so why don't you take out your notebook and your pen as we get ready to listen to what God has for us. It's wonderful to be together this morning. I want to tell you very quickly as a proviso and upfront salvo before I get into the text about something that happened when I, I first met Fiona. I, I, I was the, the perennial single in the church and uh, every, everyone, every, every mother, uh, every aunt, every granny in the church was trying to hook me up with their daughter, you know, because I'm so uh, Ill- eligible and or potentially just I looked so lonely. I'm not too sure which one it was. But none of it seemed to stick, and there was, just, there, was no, there was no chemistry from their side to my side, all the girls they brought away, along my way. But I remember this moment when I first laid eyes on Fiona, and I, I fell hook, line, and sinker. But my greatest fear as I started to pursue her was that my friends would find out. Because if, if you, I, I just, you know, for me, I just, before I got a yes from her that we were officially dating, I don't want to give my friends a chance to start to weigh in with their opinions, with their jokes, with their memes, with their, 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 their backstabbing. You know, I don't know what they wanted to do. You know, I just wanted to be careful. My friends, you got to be careful in these moments. So I remember I used to, uh, the first couple dates I went on with Fiona, she didn't know there were dates. It was a little bit of uh, uh, smoke and mirrors from my behalf. Ha <laughs> ha, surprise, you're on a date. But, um. Uh, there were incredible times and amazing chemistry, things were flowing. And I remember this one evening as I took her back and I dropped her at a, at a flat along the beachfront in Tableview. And I was in a different world. And I, I walked, walked up to the door, said goodnight, walked down, and I was floating on air. And I remember I got in my car and I was just like, this is the best life. This is, things are going well. I was so excited. I got in the car and I started to pull out and drive along. I, I failed to notice that a car uh, quietly pulled in behind me and started to follow me through the suburbs. But I was in a different world that I didn't take notes of who was behind me. And I drove and I went left, right, left, right. Then after a little while, I, I said, well, this car is quite close behind me. But, but I, my thoughts were still on Fiona. I mean, come on, look at her, people. Why wouldn't there be anywhere else? But then I got to a traffic light. And then as I approached the traffic light, I realized that the person in the car behind me, as I looked again in the rear view mirror, slunk low in their seats. And all of a sudden, I was like, what is going on here? And I started to get a little bit nervous. Uh, my palms started to grow sweaty, and I was looking around left and right. There was, the road seemed a lot emptier than usual. And I started to look anxiously again and again in uh, my rear view mirror, and I pulled off, and I turned right. This car turned right. Then I turned left. That car turned left. And I also started going, going through the Arrive Alive campaigns of how, what are we supposed to do in a situation like this? So thinking, what do I need to do? And, and I started to make sure I changed the, 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 the secular music to worship music in the car, just to make sure, cover the bases, people, cover the bases. And I thought, okay, pull, you know, once we pull into the freeway, you're overthinking this game, pull into the freeway, you'll start to be able to move away. But as I went on the freeway, and I went from left to right, so it was just like an episode of Fast and the Furious, and just left and right. Obviously, me playing the role of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, obviously. And as I mean, this car stayed, kept, kept behind me the whole way, and all of a sudden, I started going, this this thing's getting serious now. This is no longer a joke. This is not me trying to be nonchalant. This is, I've got to actually put this car through the gears. And I realized I only had four gears in that little Congress. So I was like, this thing is revving and going. And I was like, okay. And at the last minute, I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to go pull into a public space. because. And, and this was no joke in this moment. I remember thinking, this, this is it. This is the way Gay Phillips goes out. You know? And I pulled into a garage. And I remember I was about to get out and press the, the hooter and call the tension to it. And this car pulls up right next to me. And I look next to me. And it's one of my friends who was laughing his head off. And, he, and I'm so, I'm, I am spitting angry because my, my blood pressure is going through the roof. I am so stressed. I've lost years of my life. And, and, and I look at him, I'm, about to, I'm just going to unload this anger upon him. And he, st- he has one thing for me. He says, who was that girl? <laughs> and I knew I'd been, I'd, been, I'd been caught out, people. I'd been caught out in that moment. 
But I remember that moment. I can remember that night. I can remember the emotions. I can remember the exhilaration. I can remember the terror. I can remember all of that. I can remember uh, navigating all the side streets and the highways of the table view area and all of that with an eye on the rear view mirror the whole way. Where is that car behind me? And actually in the season, we, two weeks ago, we preached at Vision Sunday this reality of see the new. And I think actually, if I am aware of the temperature of our congregation, the temperature of our church at large, the temperature of my own heart, if I'm aware of the temperature of the world and the church around the world at this time, I really believe that a lot of the church is trying to navigate what God is doing with one eye in the rearview mirror. Always, always looking in the rearview mirror and saying, actually trying to get away from the thing that has been haunting me, trying to, to lay hold of the new that God has for me, but trying to get rid of the stalking behind me, the unrelenting weight, the guilt, the shame, the thing that pursues us all the way. And we, no matter what we do, no matter how many services we go to, no matter how many prayers we pray, no matter how many, uh, the charade, Christian charade we go through, it feels like the enemy is always just one step behind us and we can't get away from that grief. We can't get away from that anxiety. We can't get away from that addiction. We can't break through into what God has got for us because we've got one eye on the rearview mirror. And I want to lead us to the text that we've been preaching. Isaiah 43, verse 18 to 19 says this. The prophet declares, forget the former things. Colloquially put, forget the rearview mirror. Forget what lies behind. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? This morning, I want to shift our eyes from the rearview mirror to the wide open vista that God has got for us because I am desperately convinced that the church needs to see the new to walk into it. Father, I pray right now a simple prayer. Would you open blinded eyes? Would you awaken dead hearts by the power of your word? Would you open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word? And I pray a simple but desperate cry, God, we want to see you. Out with the old, in with the new. We're all in, Jesus. Amen. I want to take us to this narrative that's found in the book of 1 Kings to help us make sense and navigate this conversation this, this morning. But I want to give us the proviso that to see the new, we have to see the Lord, number one, who is infinitely powerful. I want, if we're going to deal with the rearview mirror and we're going to look at the wide open space God has got for us, I want to say that we have to see a God who is infinitely powerful. Let me take us to 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. We find a situation. Uh, the nation of Israel is 58 years on from the king, reign of King Solomon. 58 years on from the glory days, a unified kingdom. And there's now, since those 58 years, just six decades later, the nation is fractured into two ways. There's schisms, there's splits. And the people who are, for, who are known to be the people of, of, the, of the God Yahweh, have now become a disjointed, broken people, led by a weak king named Ahab. And the, the, the indictment of Ahab is this, about his reign. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than any king before him. You know you're a bad guy when that's the one line written about you. He did more than any of the wicked kings to provoke the Lord's anger. He worshipped foreign gods, the gods of Baal and Asherah. He married a lady called Jezebel, and Jezebel had a reputation. Her modus operandi was to use her power, her political might, to pursue, hunt down, and kill the prophets of God. This was a nation that was in disarray. They were calling good evil and calling evil good. And I want to be honest, I don't think it's a far cry from the world we find ourselves in today. 
This is the reality that they found themselves in. And the situation looked bleak. But in 1 Kings 17 verse 1, and we'll see the scripture here, there seems to be a transition moment. And it starts with these words after this big tirade of how terrible things are. It says, now Elijah. And before we read on, I just love that reality how God just says, now Elijah. The days are dark, but now Elijah. Almost a transition moment. And I love this reality that God always, no matter how dark the days get, no matter how large the enemy looms in the rearview mirror of our life, of our church, of our world, of our jobs, of our nation, I want to tell you, God always has a man, always has a woman, he always has a people, he always has a church, he always has a remnant who will not back down. I believe we are in a key, key season of the history of the world. I don't want to overemphasize uh, our, our moment, but I really believe God is calling us to see the new. And before we start saying, maybe don't, don't play alarm escape, I want to really realize that actually you and I were born for a purpose. We were born for a purpose, not an accident. God said he took you, Carl, and he took me, Gabe. He took you, Judith. He took us and our names and our spaces. And he said, I'm going to have you born and live in a time called the 2000s and those decades, those years, when there'll be this thing called the coronavirus. And there'll be this thing called the Ukraine-Russia uh, war. There'll be this thing of the social media epidemic. There'll be a thing where pornography is so rife, where there's sensuality uh, running ragged across the world, where people are so obsessed with themselves, calling evil good and good evil. And he said, I'm going to place you in this time now Elijah now Gabe Phillips and God places us in this moment so I want us to take hold of this transition piece because he goes on to speak to Ahab in this moment Elijah goes up against the power of the day and says God's words to him there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word and if you skip to chapter 18 you realize from that moment that Elijah spoke that there'll be no rain three years pass and there was no rain and this is an incredible reality. We realize that what the, the nation thought there was power in, the, in the, their, their political might. There was power in their, their, their intermarrying uh, relations. There's power in their, their foreign gods. No, but actually when you come up against the one true God, you never need the majority. You just need the one true God. There's power in that name. And this is the reality. Three years later, we find this moment comes a famous biblical narrative in 1 Kings 18 where we find a mountaintop showdown where it's Elijah, now Elijah, the one Man, God has called for this moment. Verses 450 prophets of Baal, their psychics, 400 prophets of Asherah. And this moment where the nation for three years has been an, an epidemic, has been in drought, been in famine. And they are on their knees before their foreign gods, crying out, bring the rain. And what is so, so interesting is the prophet Baal, his job was he was the god of the rain. But he's shown as weak and ineffective in this moment. But in this moment, Elijah comes in and he says, actually, I want to show down. I want you to bring the full might of your enemy foreign gods. And I want to come with the one true God. And we'll see who is the true God in this moment. And this is an incredible reality. I, I believe in this moment that we realize this, this reality that I think the church so often we've been bullied by the culture. We've been discipled by the culture. We turn on the news. We turn on social media. We turn on every narrative. And actually, the church are the bad guys become the bad guys in their narrative. But I want to tell you in this reality, and we think we're in the minority, we think, this, don't resist the tide, church, the whole world is going this way. But actually God says, now Elijah, one man, don't need the majority, just need God. And this is the reality in this narrative, is this, if you're unaware of it, Elijah comes and he says to these 450 prophets of Baal, the false rain god, and says, listen, I want you to get a sacrifice, set up an altar, put a bull on it, and then I want you to call on your God. And 
See if he answers with fire. I'll do the same, and I'll set up an altar. I'll put a bull on it. I'll call on my God, and we'll see if he answers by fire. And he says, whoever answers by fire is the one true God. And they agree to this moment, and what happens on this incredible mountaintop is this reality happens where the prophets of Baal set up the altar. They cut the sacrifice, and they start to shout. They start to dance. They start to sing. They start to cut themselves. They are vociferous. They're loud. There's just a huge, a lot of noise going on, and they're calling out. And this is where I love the Bible. Elijah is sarcastic. As they are going, and they're going, they're losing their minds, trying to grab the attention of the God named Baal. Elijah starts to say to him, maybe shout louder. Maybe he's daydreaming. Elijah says to him, maybe he's relieving himself and gone to the toilet. It's in the Bible. The prophet Elijah says, maybe he's gone on a trip. Maybe he's napping and needs to be awakened. And this this reality is they get to the end of themselves and they are so spent and they realize their God is not answered by fire. Elijah, without any hoopla, without any noise, without any wild inclination, he just goes, he rebuilds the altar, he puts the sacrifice on the altar and says, God, I call on your name. And in that moment, God answers by fire. Boom. And the sacrifice is consumed. And not just that, actually before that, Elijah poured on the altar water three times to show them there was no trickery here. There was no other illusions going on. This was no David Blaine moment. This was God himself answering by fire. And this gets me, all of that is a presupposition for this reality. I want to remind us that God is alive. God is alive. Isaiah, the same prophet we quoted earlier on, he said this in Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Let me declare to our fickle hearts that Vladimir Putin will die. Boris Johnson will die. Donald Trump will die. Joe Biden will die. Zuma will die. Ramaphosa will die. Steenhazen will die. Malema will die. Helen Ziller will die. And in just over 100 years from now, not one of the 8 billion people on the planet now with an opinion will even have one breath left in them. All of us will be dead. Kings and kingdoms will rise and they will fall. And Time Magazine tried in April 1966 to declare that God was dead, but they were wrong because he never had a beginning and therefore depends on nothing for his existence. He always has been and he always will be alive. Leaders have come and gone, but Jesus stands unchallenged. So I want to encourage us in this moment where everything inside of us wants to look in the rearview mirror and say, what, what are the governments doing? What are, what are the nations doing? What's the posturing of corruption? What is happening in this world? And there's anxiety gripping our hearts. What is load shedding God for us? What is the future of this nation? How will provide for my children? And we obsessed with the rearview mirror. I want to tell you, the Bible tells us, why do the nations rage in vain? The one who rules in heaven laughs. And he laughs not because he is uncaring. He laughs because he is alive. I want to tell you, God is not just alive, he's also authoritative. Scripture goes on, says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. And John Piper, the quote will come up behind me, he said this, no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or cutting his grass or shining his shoes or filling out reports or loading a truck. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is never at wit's end with his heavenly realm. He sits and he sits on a throne, all is at peace, and he has control. God is alive, God is authoritative, God is also all-powerful, or better put, he's omnipotent. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on 
a throne. It feels like we are watching an episode of Game of Thrones at the moment around the world where it just feels like there's a dearth of leadership and people posturing of who needs to have authority and who needs to have control and, and who's going to have the final word and will it be this side, the left, or will it be the radical right? Who's gonna, whose voice will fill the void? And I want to tell you there's a whole bunch of empty thrones and voting, invading, posturing happening. But I want to tell you, truthfully to my own heart, there is a throne in heaven and it is occupied. His throne is not one amongst many thrones. It is high and lifted up. There is not a cosmic battle between God and Satan. No, God is God and the enemy is living on borrowed time. We have to, if we are gonna see the new, we have to see a Lord who is infinitely powerful. In 1 Kings verse 18, in that showdown, before the, the whole thing goes down, this one verse that has haunted me, because Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, says to the nation of Israel, he says, how much longer will you waver Will you hobble between two opinions? The nation of Israel, who had an idea of who God was, but who had become obsessed with the rearview mirror, obsessed with what the nations around them said, were obsessed with what the other nations were doing, so they usurped their gods and pulled their relationships in and went along with their agenda. I want to tell you, these are the people who lost that reality, and we need to know in this moment that the shortest and most profound theology found in the Bible is three words. Jesus is Lord. I want to tell you, it's, it's not sung in catchy tunes or something to be emblazoned on church banners. It's a subversive statement of the church in response to the world who says, no, emotions are Lord. To a world who says, no, 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 sexuality is Lord. No, 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 my opinion is Lord. My rhetoric is Lord. No, we say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. And we say that not to the world first, we say it to ourselves because I believe this is the reality that we have to declare to our emotions, declare to our fears, declare to our insecurities, declare to the rear view mirror, Jesus is Lord. It's time for the church to truly bow her knee because Hebrews 12 verse 29 says this, our God is a consuming fire. Other translations say devouring fire. And I think the world, the problem is we have shrunk our vision down to a God that we understand that a God that we agree with. As A.W. Tozer once says, God created man in, in his image, and man has spent ever since then creating God back into our image. I would say, no, 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 we have to get a right view of God again. We have to see a God who's infinitely powerful, a God who's alive, a God who's authoritative, a God who's all-powerful. You see, this is the reality, because as this, 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 this story ends with a fire coming down, and if you flip over to chapter 19, one chapter later, Jezebel hears about this, and she steps in and she says, I will, and I paraphrase, she says, I am coming after you, Elijah. I'm going to kill you. And in this moment, you realize that the accuser pursues him. And there's always going to be a pursuit of the enemy. Whenever you get a new revelation of God, whenever you step out in faith, whenever you make a decision to stand for God, the accuser accuses night and day. And if you want to know who's in your rearview mirror, it's the enemy. And he'll pursue you and pursue you. And you think that you're going to get away, but actually he's going to say, I'm going to keep coming after you until you understand who God has called you to be. This is the truth for you and I. I want to tell you, number one, God is infinitely powerful. But secondly, we need to, if we want to see the new, we have to see the Lord who is intimately personal. Elijah, who's just had a showdown, 1 verses 450, and come out on top, fire coming down from heaven. But the voice of one lady saying, I'm going to come and kill you, sends fear into his heart. And he runs. The Bible tells us that he was afraid and he flees. The power of the rearview mirror. He's just seen God bring fire down from heaven. Then one lady has said, I'm going to come and kill you. And he says, okay, I'm out of here. And he flees for his life. 
And he's hiding in the wilderness. And he's had this victory on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And now he goes to another mountain called Mount Horeb. And he's in a cave. And that's what the fear of, of man will do. What the voice of the enemy will do when we're obsessed with what the enemy is doing behind us, when that he's got us in a vice-like grip and we cannot get free and we, we are never dealing with the rearview mirrors, we'll always be running into little caves and hiding away on the side. And this is the reality. In this moment, God meets Elijah. The God of fire comes and meets Elijah, and he meets Elijah with this question. Elijah, who's afraid, who's fled, and he's, Elijah's even said, I want to die. God meets him, and God says these words to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, let me tell you, I think tone is everything. You can read that and you can think God has got there and he's going, what are you doing here, Elijah? You have an appointment back there. You're late. Come on. But I want to tell you, I, I, I don't read it that way. I read it in the context that God comes and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? That actually, all the way across Scripture, when we see the fact when God questions us, God never questions us to expose us. He always questions us to empower us. In the garden, when Adam and Eve were hiding, God came out and said, where are you, Adam? God hadn't lost him. God wasn't going, where did I, no, where did I place Adam? If I was an Adam, where would I be? No, 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 God... God wasn't at a loss for where Adam was, but he was actually called, questioning him not to, not to expose him, but actually to clothe him and empower him. Where are you, Adam? And that's maybe the question God asks you and I today. Where are you, sir? Where are you, ma'am? Where is your heart? Are you, are you, are you caught in a, in a journey of trying to keep an eye on the rearview mirror, trying to get, navigate your own guilt and shame, navigate what happened to you, navigate that fear, navigate that offense, navigating that brokenness, that, what, what the, the diagnosis the doctor said, and, you're saying, and the rearview mirror is looming large, but God's saying, no, no, I want you to forget that, and I want you to see the new. Here's the reality that this is the good news, is that we see the God who questions us never to expose us, but to empower us. The woman with the issue of blood comes, and she presses through in Mark chapter 5, and she grabs a hold of Jesus' garment, and Jesus says a statement, who touched me? Now, let me tell you again, Jesus wasn't going, who was that? Who was that? I, I don't know. No, Jesus being God, he knew, but he said, somebody deliberately touched me, and when he's asking that question, he wasn't doing it to expose the woman. He was actually empowering her back into community. Where are you, Adam? What are you doing here, Elijah? Who touched me? These are the questions God is asking us, and he's asking not to indict you, not to put his finger in your chest and embarrass you, but saying, will you allow the questioning of God to call you out of your hiding, to call you out of your cave, saying, I want you back, I want you back. And here's the reality. I love the fact that he says, where are you? What are you doing here, Elijah? Because the God who calls down fire is the same God who knows our name. He's infinitely powerful, and he's intimately personal. He's the transcendent God who is far above. His thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. He knows the beginning from the end and he dwells in unapproachable light. He is transcendent and at the same time he's imminent, meaning that he's closer than your hands and feet, knowing your deepest thoughts, knowing the amount of hairs on your head. He's the God of all comfort. There is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. He's the creator and the eternal judge of our souls. And in the midst of our darkest day, he's the deepest comforter of your soul. Who can know the mind of God? I love the fact that in this moment, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he calls him to the, the mouth of the cave. 
And God says a mighty windstorm, a mighty uh, winds came past, and it, and it blew, and it blew, and Elijah held his cloak around him, and he tried to see what God was doing, and in that moment he said, but God was not in the windstorm. The next thing we found, there was an earthquake, and the whole mountain started to shake, and I can imagine boulders coming down, he's like going, what is going on here? And he says, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Then there was a fire, a fire burnt, and burnt around the cave, and it was scorching him, and the heat was, was too much, and it's pulling back away, but he says, God wasn't in the fire. And it says, then there came a gentle whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? God was in that whisper, knowing Elijah's name. I want to tell you today, when you're at your worst, God is always at his best. I don't care what you've done. I tell you, the Father comes with a gentle whisper to you today. The enemy calls you by your shame. The Father always calls you by your name. The enemy always calls you by the rearview mirror, where you've been. The, car, the Father always calls you about where are you going. I want to send you back. I want to send you back into the fight. I want to call you again. Here's the reality. I remember one of the, uh, the privileges of being a pastor is you get a lot of phone calls from people at their darkest moments. And, uh, and I've got a, quite a sunny personality. I think it's a faith gift, a positivity inside that actually I'll be able to uh, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, answer those phone calls, able to give wisdom that's beyond me in moments and comfort and sometimes not knowing what to say but just be there. But I remember a phone call a few years ago when I got a phone call from a father who just lost a child, and they told the story, and I, and I, and I had nothing to say, and I was, I was at a low, and I was, I'll be honest, I was, I was done, I did not, I just, I feared that phone ringing, I did not know what to say to this man, I was like, I've never been there, I don't know what to say, and everything I said sounded cheap and trite, and I was like, I don't know God. And I remember in that moment with my emotions inside, churning, churning, churning. I remember I did not know what to do, so I, I thought I'm going to do what any son will do. So I phoned my dad. <laughs> phoned my dad, and I remember phoning him, and I was going to tell him the story and say, Dad, well, give me wisdom. What should I say to this guy? What is the scripture? What is the thought? And as, I, as, I, as he answered the phone, he said, hello, my boy. How are you, Gabs? And all the bravado, all the pastoral inside of me broke, and I just started to weep. Wow. Just hearing my dad call my name in that moment. And my dad gave me no advice, he gave me no scriptures, but in that moment it was this hearing the voice of my father say, I know you, I know you, gave me confidence to get back in the fight. I want to tell you the father knows you. He knows your name. I think too often we live in this reality, I just even sense now that there's this, we live in this thing of this, he loves me, he loves me not. That's what the rearview mirror will do, obsession with the rearview mirror. When you're doing well, he loves me. And when you've sinned and you've fallen short, when you've succumbed to that fear again, you've succumbed to that tendency, you've pulled away again, you've, you've run away, you, you go, he loves me not. And we, we live in this, this, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And, and actually, I want to declare to you the good news of the gospel because of Jesus Christ. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. He loves you. On your worst day, He loves you. On your best day, He loves you. When you've got no more answers, He loves you. He pursues you. He's intimately personal. I want to tell you, if we're going to see the new, we have to see a God who's infinitely powerful, a God who's intimately personal. And thirdly and finally, we need to see a God who's intentionally pursued. 1 Corinthians 18 starts on the Mount Carmel. 1 Corinthians 19 takes place on Mount Horeb in a cave. But in between that is the end of chapter 18. After the fire has come down, Elijah says to Ahab, after three years, he says, I hear the sound of coming rain. 
and he goes to the top of the mountain, and there's been no rain for three years. And this incredible moment as Elijah on the top of the mountain starts to pray, and he starts to pray for the rain to come. And, he, and this is an incredible thing. He prays, and he sends a servant out. He says, go and see, is the rain coming? And the servant comes back and says, no, blue skies. Weather24.com says, blue skies for the next seven to 10 years. No rain, no rain on the forecast. And there's this moment where Elijah, the first time, you can imagine, oh, I've just prayed, I spoke one word, and the, the heavens stopped for three years. And now I've just seen fire come down, and I'm praying, God, come on. I've just told the king, rain is coming. This is your reputation on the line. So in this moment, Elijah goes back and prays the second time. Comes out, go check it. No, no rain. And this incredible moment, this, this dance of pursuit of Elijah going in and praying and calling on the name of the Lord for the, the rain to come, and then coming out and sending a servant to go and check, happened not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, not six times, but seven times. And what is so incredible is the scripture, never, God didn't say to him, I want you to go and pray X amount of times. God says, go pray and the rain will come. But this is, the narrative, this is the reality of God. I think so often we would, I would love God to say, this is how many times you must preach sermons until they get it. Oh, they'll be so nice. I'll just notch on the wall. Whew, that's fine. Just, I just need to do five more. Then they'll get it. You just, need to, you, just need to do, you just need to tithe this amount of times. Then you'll see the breakthrough. I wish God said that. You, you just need to forgive X amount. Then you'll be fine. You just need to, no, God just says, pursue me. Pursue me. Come after me. And this is an incredible reality that he looks again and he looks again. And I, and I want to say this, this thought here is that the Bible says we renew our minds, meaning we go over and rehearse and we change our minds by the washing of. And before we work out what the washing of is, how we renew our mind, I think the world we and our own hearts have been seduced that we are renewing our minds by the washing of Instagram feeds. Let me tell you, there is no neutral ground. You're either being discipled by the ways of the world or discipled by Jesus. And the world is on the front foot and is trying to disciple you. We are renewing our mind by the washing of YouTube links that people send us. Guilty as charged. And we go down the rabbit hole. Did you see what these people are doing? Shock horror. Washing our minds. Washing our minds with, the, by, with, with, with this, when you say renewing our minds by the washing of friends' opinions. Having those conversations again and again and again. Washing our minds, renewing our minds by the washing of painful memories, by going over the doctor's diagnosis, by going over the hurtful words, going over the moments of failure again and again. And we're renewing our minds to line up with the rearview mirror. Obsessed with the small, obsessed with the enemy pursuing us. Never fully be able to get away from him. But I love this reality. The Bible says, renew your mind by the washing of the word. The word. And let me tell you, I have a deep, deep fear that the church of Jesus are not reading the word of God. There's no amens there because I think we're all guilty of it. Please, in a moment of deep honesty, this doesn't fit well in a nice rehearsed sermon that flits, fits, and flows. I beg you to read the word. I beg you, the Bible says washing of the word. That means not just flitting and reading a scripture. Read it, read it, read it. I don't understand it. Elijah prayed once and he didn't see anything. I don't understand it. Go again back to the word. Go again, go again, go again, go again. He's infinitely powerful. He will pour down fire. He's intimately personal. He does know your name, but he says, come and find me. Find me. 
Call on me and I will answer, he says. Seek me and you will find me. Knock and the door will be opened. He says, will you come after me, church? But the church of Jesus Christ, I think, are too paralyzed to go after him because we're too obsessed with what's behind us. Good things, bad things, hard things, tough things, shameful things. We're so obsessed and looking around trying to navigate our lives. Stay away from this. Do the, actually, see the new. I'm infinitely powerful. I'm intimately personal. I'm intentionally pursued seven times. He does it. And seven, let me tell you, is not some special numerology. Like, do it seven times. Oh, sing this chorus seven times, Mish. Ooh, here we go. No, it's not like some magic in seven, but it's what the Bible's showing us. Seven is a number that shows us it's a representation of where man's efforts end and where seeing God's work begins. I want to bring us into land. We've been doing this building campaign. Try and buy this building. In the worst times. <laughs> in the worst economic situation, in the time where every phone call from other pastors are saying they are laying off staff, they're doing this, they have to do How? And we're like, well, we feel called to ask people for money for a building. Logic does not make sense. And we started to see God doing incredible things last year. And faith started to rise. We're going, how is this happening? And let me tell you, all the voices of people said, I will give, I'll give millions, went very quiet all of a sudden when we asked. Where are they? And every temptation was, let's give them a call. Hey, you remember what you said? But our hope's not in man. Our hope's not in the promises of man. God called us to this. He's infinitely powerful. He's intimately personal. He knows my name. He knows their name if he needs to speak to them. But actually, God, my, my hope is not in them. But this is the thing God said, will you pursue me? And actually, we had to say, actually, our pursuit is not in actually counting the money, asking and pleading and clever strategies and, and selling these things. And, and No, actually, we said, God, we want to ask you. And there came a moment last year in November where the bank, who was going to help us and navigate this journey and get us going, they said, actually, we're out. We are, it's November. We've been asking our church for six months. You can't be out. They're, no, no, you can't be. And they're like, no, sorry, we've done all the sums. Uh, sorry, we can't. And in that moment of, of fear, of stress, the emails, the strongly worded emails started to come out. The flesh started to come out. We're going to build we will tarnish their name because they made promises. No, you, you want to go to your flesh. But God said, no, trust me. Trust me. And there was one phone call that we made, one phone call to a friend of Mark's who has this, this, this position of authority. But he has this high authority that can make change things. But he has an incredible thing. He doesn't just have a position of power. He also, we have his name in our cell phone. We have access to that power because he knows us. We phoned him and said, hey, this situation, can you make a call? He made a call, and let me tell you, in five minutes, a process that had been blocked up for about four weeks, oh, sorry, guys, we've made, been able to, we made a mistake. We're able to help you still. And this is the reality. I think we, we forget that this is what God says. He says, actually, will you pursue me? I want to unlock heaven for you. I, I have resources for you. But actually, we get so disappointed. We get so obsessed with the rear view. God says, will you see what I have in front of you? Let me tell you about this man named Jesus. Jesus on the cross is where the transcendence of God, God, and the imminence of, man, of God collided. Where he died as God, as he died as man, as he died as the infinitely powerful God died on the cross, as the, the, the intentionally personal, for this incredible, intimately personal God died on the cross for you and I. And this is the incredible reality. As he died on the cross, there were things that Jesus said. The first thing Jesus said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
The second thing he said was, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third thing he said was, woman, behold your son, behold, sons, behold your mother. The fourth thing he said was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth thing he said was, I thirst. The sixth thing he said was, Father, into your hands I commit, commend my spirit. The sixth thing was when he said, I, I'm done. But I thank God that he, Jesus didn't stop on sixth. He said the seventh and final thing, he said, it is finished. And I want to tell you that God is reminding us that actually when we get to the end of our efforts, he says, that's when I start to begin. And this is the people, I believe God is wanting to speak those words over you and I, the finished work of the cross into this season so we can lay to death the things of our past, lay to death the things of the rearview mirror, lay to death those things that have haunted us, that have stalked us, that have weighed us down so we can see the new that God has got for us. Because I believe God says, I want you to see a God who is infinitely powerful, a God who's intimately personal, and a God who's intentionally pursued. Can we stand to our feet? I love to call the band up as we land. I read the scripture in Isaiah 43. One last time, it says this. Isaiah 43 says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? Father, I thank you right now for us as your people. As we gather around your word, as we gather around your character, we thank you, Father God, right now you would come and invade our hearts. I thank you, Father, that the old is gone, the new has come. I declare right now over every single heart where we have become obsessed with the rearview mirror, where we have lived with our eyes over our shoulder at our guilt, our shame, our sin, our brokenness, our fears, our anxieties, the what-ifs, the potentials of collapse in the nation, the what are we gonna do about our future, what are we gonna do about the business, what are we gonna do about this? We walk around obsessed with the grief that torments us in the depths of our soul and we don't know what to do. We, we live with this, the diagnosis that so gripped our families that we, we're never able to make a plan about the future. I thank you, God, today. It's not a denial of the reality. It's actually uh, the people of God saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We choose to see you. Why do we lift our hands as a people? The Bible encourages us to lift hands, but I think it's also a physical response to activate uh, uh, the spiritual nature inside of us. Say, God, my eyes are on you. As hands are lifted, God, I pray hearts would follow. Right now, hearts would follow to see a God who's infinitely powerful. Infinitely powerful. A God who calls down fire from heaven. A God who is a consuming fire. A God who says, well, every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess that I am Lord. And I thank you, God. I declare that we are a church who says Jesus is Lord to our emotions. We are a church who says Jesus is Lord to our failures. We say Jesus is Lord to our finances. Jesus is Lord to our fears. Jesus is Lord to our sickness and disease. Jesus is Lord. I come out and I say, have I seen the healing yet? No, not yet, but I'm going to go ask again. Have I seen the healer yet? No, but I, God is still a healer. I'm going to still keep pursuing him. Have I seen the breakthrough yet? No, but I'm going to keep coming. Because I'm coming not to a God made of human hands, not a God who's deaf and mute, not a God who's gone on vacation, not a God who's relieving himself, not a God who needs to be woken up from his nap. No, we serve a God who is alive and a God who has all authority and all power and all dominion. We come to that God who also knows our name. In this moment, just with eyes closed, I really believe God's here and He's, 
He's asking you questions. Where are you? Where are you? Running? Hiding? Fearful? He's saying, I'm coming to you and say, where are you? He's coming to you saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Gabe? What are you doing here, Bongani? What are you doing here, Diane? What are you doing here, Gordon? What are you doing here, Fred? What are you doing here, Susan? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Not to expose you, but to empower you. To empower you, to call you back. He says, who touched me? Who is deliberately laying a hold of me in this moment because power is going out from me? I thank you, Father God, that you are here right now. You're calling your people to life. What an amazing, amazing word. If you would like to find out about what's happening in the life of the church, why don't you follow us on our social media, Instagram or Facebook, or you can go into our website, lifechanges.org.za. Thank you so much for watching that video. Be blessed.